Uncle George in the leading section took off in a cloud of dust. Brian Carberry looked across and put up his thumbs. I nodded and opened up to take off for the last time from Hornchurch. I was flying number three in Brian's section, with Stapney Stapleton on the right. The third section consisted of only two machines, so that our squadron strength was eight. We headed southeast, climbing out on a steady course. At about 12,000 feet, we came up through the clouds. I looked down and saw them spread out below me like layers of whipped cream. The sun was brilliant and made it difficult to see even the next plane when turning. I was peering anxiously ahead, for the controller had given us warning of at least 50 enemy fighters approaching very high. When we did first sight them, nobody shouted, as I think we all saw them at the same moment. They must have been 500 to 1,000 feet above us and coming straight on like a swarm of locusts. I remember cursing and going automatically into line astern. The next moment we were in among them and each man was for himself. As soon as they saw us, they spread out and dived and the next 10 minutes was a blur of twisting machines and tracer bullets. One Mesher Smith went down in a sheet of flame on my right and a Spitfire hurtled past in a half roll. I was weaving and turning in a desperate attempt to gain height, with the machine practically hanging on the air screw. Then just below me and to my left, I saw what I'd been praying for, a Messerschmitt climbing away from the sun. I closed in and to 200 yards, and from slightly to one side gave him a two-second burst. Fabric ripped off the wing and black smoke poured from the engine, but he did not go down. Like a fool, I did not break away, but put in another three-second burst. Red flames shot upwards and he spiralled out of sight. At that moment I felt a terrific explosion which knocked the control stick from my hand and the whole machine quivered like a stricken animal. In a second the cockpit was a mass of flames. Instinctively I reached up to open the hood. It would not move. I tore off my straps and managed to force it back, but this took time, and when I dropped back into the seat and reached for the stick in an effort to turn the plane on its back... The heat was so intense that I could feel myself going. I remember a second of sharp agony, remember thinking, so this is it, and putting both my hands to my eyes. Then I passed out. To be continued. Welcome to Bloody Violent History, and this, our section on some of the most important battles in history. The Prussian military theorist Karl von Clausewitz said that war is politics by other means. And in war, battles are fought, on land, on sea, and in the air. Many are inconclusive, some are a step towards eventual victory, and of course, the winner of the last battle is generally the victor. We're going to examine some iconic battles which have either brought a war to a close or have had such an important effect on the war that they have decisively changed its direction and outcome. A very few of these end up defining a conflict or even a nation. Today we are going to discuss the Battle of Britain, fought in the skies above Britain between the Royal Air Force and Nazi Germany's Luftwaffe in the summer of 1940. I'm very fortunate to be joined by a historian who has written extensively on the Second World War. His 2010 book, The Battle of Britain, is highly regarded and a must-read on the subject. James Holland, Welcome to Bloody Violent History. Well, thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. My first question, really, about the Battle of Britain is what's going on just before the Battle of Britain? 
um, what we like to think of as the sort of jaw-jaw leading up to the war war, although obviously more than that had happened. We've got Battle of France and Dunkirk. So perhaps a little bit of that and how that leads into the Battle of Britain. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm very much of the view that although um, the Battle of Britain is officially starts on the 10th of July, in many ways, the Battle of Britain starts earlier than that. And it's very interesting when you look at Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding's dispatch, um, which he wrote, uh, you know, he was a commander of, uh, commander in chief of RAF Fighter Command, and he wrote up subsequent to the battle. He said, you know, my opinion, the Battle of Britain started on the, you know, on, on the 3rd of July, 1939, when we entered the war. But, you know, I've got to pick some arbitrary date, but, and my arbitrary date is the 10th of July. But actual fact, Fighter Command is in battle. Um, well, Fighter Command, first of all, is, is designed to protect Britain and Britain's sovereignty. And so the moment it goes into action, in a way, the Battle of Britain has begun because it's there defending Britain. And so, it, you know, Battle of Britain goes into action in the third week of May before Dunkirk starts. And that's because the Allies on, on, on the continent have been pushed back. Um, they've been almost entirely encircled, but they've been certainly put into a kind of a, a lozenge-shaped figure, which is uh, space, which is imploding, you know, it, it is inverting in on itself and heading hurriedly back towards the coast and, and will subsequently be evacuated from, from the port of Dunkirk. And Fighter Command is there to protect that and protect those British troops particularly, but also those other troops um, that are pulling back. Uh, and, and that is because Britain's sovereignty at that moment is under threat. And that's why they're drawn in. You know, you need extra fighter support to cover that evacuation. And they're being pulled into that in the third week of May. Is that the moment where Dowding sends his famous memo um, about not sending more squadrons to France? Yeah, it is. I mean, that, that's, that famous memo is, is, is more famous because of the film than from, from reality, because they do get sent to France. They don't get sent to France in so much that they're not sent to kind of permanently based in France, but they are still sent to France. It doesn't make any difference whatsoever. And the reason they're sent to France is because we have to do everything we possibly can to get as many troops out of Dunkirk as possible. You know, the, the army in 1940, the British army is very much the kind of third arm, the senior services, the Royal Navy, that's the most, you know, in the, in the pecking order, that's considered to be the most important. And that's obvious because Britain's a maritime power, it's an island nation, all those sort of things, it has a huge empire and, and um, extra imperial assets as well all around the world. So that's why you need a large navy. But but allied to that is air power and, and burgeoning air power. And so the army is a kind of, not quite an afterthought, but it's, it's, it's incredibly small. And... Yet, had the whole British Expeditionary Force been encircled and put in the bag um, in nineteen forty, you know, in, in May nineteen forty, then psychologically, that politically, that's such a big momentous event that you can see that the negotiations that were going on in as as the Dunkirk evacuation operation Dynamo was was beginning um, on on the week of the starting Sunday, the twenty sixth of May. You can see that Halifax, who was all for kind of putting out feast peepers and Churchill, the brand new prime minister, was was absolutely adamantly against that. You can see that that working in Halifax's favour in a way that it didn't because troops were being evacuated and the Dunkirk operation was underway and sort of as a, as a week passed, increasingly successfully. So had it been a complete failure, had there been no evacuation, I think Halifax's call for... for 
talking terms would have have held sway, and that would have had a massively different outpack, um, outcome on on the Second World War. So it's incredibly important that the BEF, small though it is, is protected, and that is the job of aerial. Um, you know, of, of air power circling above, protecting them on the ground, protecting those ships, protecting that evacuation. And that is largely carried out by fighter command. OK, so there's a there's a sort of seamless transition between protecting the troops coming back from Dunkirk and then their role moves into shooting down the German bombers and fighters. Exactly that, because, because as far as the Germans are concerned and as far as Hitler's concerned, it is absolutely... You know, they are expecting that the evacuation, that the Britain's defeat will bring them to the peace table. You know, that's because Hitler views his enemies very much through the same prism through which he looks at his own situation. So from his point of view, the army is absolutely the most important thing. So therefore, if your army's been defeated, what, what is the left? You know, he's just not he's just not putting himself in his enemy's shoes. Mm. And so he thinks that, you know, of course Britain would super peace. Why on earth would they would they carry on fighting? What's the point? You know. They came into the war to defend Poland. Poland's been consumed. They're an ally of France. France has been defeated. So therefore, why on earth would Britain fight? Well, the reason Britain fights is because they don't want a Europe dominated by Nazis. But Hitler simply can't see that. To him, as far as he's concerned, there's nothing wrong with what he's doing. You know, Nazism is great. And, and he can't see that Britain would have a problem with that. So he thinks, of course, Britain's going to sue for peace. So then they've also got, you know, to finish off the French campaign, which obviously doesn't happen until the third week of June. Then they've got to, in the case of, of of protracting an attack on Britain, an aerial assault on Britain. They've then got to move all their aircraft up to brand new airfields in the Pas de Calais and in Normandy, as close as they possibly can get to Britain. That's not something you can just click your fingers. So there is a hiatus. You know, there's still air operations going on in June 1940, but they're in no way concentrated. And if anything, the the, the greatest number of of Sorties is coming from the RAF rather than uh, against German targets, rather than Luftwaffe targets against British in June 1940. And then they, you know, as those um, fighters' uh, airfields start to be made in rough fields around Calais, um, it throughout the second half of June and into the beginning of July, and as more bombers move up and take over existing airfields a bit further inland. So operations begin, but it's a, it's a long old process. It's not just a question of clicking your fingers and suddenly all your Luftwaffe are on the Channel Coast. You know, you've got to, and it's not just a question of flying in. You've got to bring in spares and have workshops and ground crew and fuel dumps and ammunition dumps and all the rest of it. And you know, this is a this is a huge strain on on Germany's logistical supply. So the fact that they could, you know, just three weeks after the defeat of France, that they're in any position to start launching any attacks in the Channel is is reasonably impressive but that's about the tops of it and the, and the truth of the matter is in July 1940 you know all they're trying to do is goad the RAF into um, and fighter commands into into fighting over the channel and attacking allied shipping in the, in the in the English channel because quite you know a lot of a lot of Britain's freight is is ferried around the country by sea power you know the sort of east coast convoys and all the rest of it the coal scuttle brigade etc cetera, etc cetera. you know and obviously the great city of London, for example, that needs feeding. You know, where, where's that coal coming from? Well, it's coming down from the East Coast and the kind of, you know, the coal fields of, of, of the northeast. The great uh, moor ships of uh, Thames, Thames Estuary, yes. Oh, yeah, and all that. So, so from a point of view of the Luftwaffe, that's a comparatively obvious target to go for. Well, let's just sort of pry the pressure by strangling Allied, you know, British shipping to start off with. Well, what happens, of course, is that eventually, in pretty quick order, British abandoned doing East Coast convoys and kind of 
you know, reconstitute things so that it's Bristol and um, Cardiff and Liverpool and, and Greenwich particularly that are the main ports into Britain and, and reusing rail service, uh, rail freight instead. So do you think that um, Operation Sea Lion, which was the German invasion plan for Britain with those barges that they had uh, preparing to come over the channel, was that really, in Hitler's, given that he's a, a, an army-based thinker rather than a naval-based thinker, that that really was a sort of something he never really thought was going to be necessary? He almost caught our army anyway, didn't get that just knock the air force out and and that's it we've had it yeah i think that i think that's about about right to be fair to i think he just thinks sort of apply the pressure uh, i mean hitler is not very keen on operation sea lion because it's it comes with all sorts of problems first problem is that he doesn't really understand naval power and he doesn't really understand what's required and they haven't really got the kit to do it you know the fact that they're using rhine river barges as you point out um is not a good sign you know they don't have landing craft and um, they just haven't thought about that that's not on their kind of it's not on their radar, really. And suddenly the situation of Britain still being in the fight prompts it to kind of think again. I mean, it's really interesting because you know the British show their mettle and their, and their resolve by attacking the French fleet at uh, Mirza Kabir in, um, just off uh, Iran in, in Algeria and sinking a number of vessels there and killing a number of French sailors. You know, everyone's, you know, even the Nazis are sort of thinking, oh, OK, so maybe it's not quite straightforward after all. Hitler then has his great triumph in, in Berlin on, I think it's either the 6th or 7th of May, um, where, you know, it's a quarter of a million people lining the streets and, you know, some sort of classic Caesarian kind of style. Um, I don't suppose anyone triumph. is whispering in his ear, though. Uh, well, possibly not. And then he retreats to the Burghof, which is his house in the mountains down near Berkisgarden. And it's interesting because what the Nazis do is they create the OKW, the Overcommando de Wehrmacht, which is the first combined services general staff which in itself is an inherently good idea but they don't use it as such it's basically used as Hitler's mouthpiece and what he does when he gets the Berghof is he comes and twiddles his thumbs and congratulates himself and then gets the navy to come down and says okay so what are we going to do about Britain you know what you know Mr Mr Admiral you know what are you what are you going to do and the uh, Kriegsmarine chiefs you know uh, Admiral Raider sort of does lots of teeth sucking and says well you know I think what you really need to do is attack on a very broad you know very narrow front because we haven't got much shipping so, you know, somewhere sort of, you know, 200 yards either side of Deal. You know, I'm exaggerating, of course, but but it's a very narrow front down in um, in, in in the southeast. Then he gets in the uh, army and says, well, OK, so what's your plan? And, you know, von Brunstent and Co. And, and Halder and von Braukic all sort of go, well, you know, I think we should uh, attack on a very broad front from Lyme Regis to Deal. And so Hitler goes, OK, we're going away and make your plans then. And then he calls in Goering and says, OK, so what's the Luftwaffe's plan? The Luftwaffe sort of go, well, we're just going to smash the RAF and then do whatever's required. And, and Hitler goes, great, well, crack on, chaps. And then he sort of twiddles his thumbs a bit more. And then he goes to the, the, the Wagner Festival at Beirut in the third week of July. And then he sort of waits for Britain to come to the peace table. And, of course, it doesn't happen. So it's like, oh, OK, uh, that's a bit annoying. So we are going to have to kind of launch this attack. But before we can even think about launching a cross-channel evasion, even Hitler, who was a sort of you know military nincompoop, despite thinking he's a military genius, recognises that you're going to need air superiority before you can even think about crossing the channel. And so they think, OK, right, so, you know, the Luftwaffe needs to come up with a plan to destroy the RAF. And that doesn't really come to the fore until the very, very beginning of August. And then there's a sort of, well, you know, Goering thinks, well, we need a sort of gap in the weather. We'll need at least three days and then one for luck. So, you know, four clear days of weather and then we'll go. And then it's not until the second week of 
of August 1940 that he thinks uh, that you know that the weather forecasters say, well, I think, boss, you know, it looks like you know we might get a We're few on. clear days. I just wanted to have a quick word about uh, the commanders and a couple of the bits of kit. Um, yeah, please is, do. So obviously on our on the British side, we've got Dowding. And we've got under him a number of air vice marshals, including Park and Lee Mallory. Yeah, well, Downing's very interesting because he's, you know, he was a he was a fighter commander in the First World War. He gets sacked for being too nice to his pilots, um, ends up an instructor, um, survives the cull um, at the end of the First World War and works his way up. And he's a very, very good administrator, um, very clear thinking. And, and he's overall in charge of, sort of research and development in the late 1930s. And oversees the creation of fighter command from the sort of metropolitan command to, uh, and also oversees the development of the radar chain. So um, he is responsible for the world's first fully coordinated air defence system. And, and for that, Britain knows him, uh, you know, an un- un- unbelievable debt of, um, of thanks. Yeah. And it's brilliant in its simplicity. And in fact, the air defence system of Britain, the air defence that we have today is based on exactly the same principles as, as was laid down in 1938, really. Okay, and, the, um, and in very simple terms, it is what? So what do you have? You have a radar chain, um, which as time progresses becomes more sophisticated. You have um, chain low and chain high. Chain chain low can sort of pick up things you know, quite a long way away, about sort of 120 miles away, but, but very vaguely. And then chain high is is, um, is a bit more sophisticated, uh, but shorter range, but can, can tell greater detail. And you have these, all, and they're all overlapping all along the east and southern coast of England. Uh, and that all goes into uh, that all gets transmitted in a very efficient way um, to uh, fighter command headquarters at Bentley Priory, which is in Stanmore, which is in sort of northwest London. There, there's a filter room that filters all the information that's coming in about plots arriving and activity picked up on the on the radar, uh, and that is then fed back out again in very quick order to the control rooms uh, and to the um, the various fighter groups and then the um, sectors. And at the same time, the Observer Corps, which is about 30,000 strong, has got a whole load of people on the ground, again, in overlapping areas of um, responsibility, where they are visually reporting on what they're seeing in the sky and and using sort of basically giant protractors and sextants, old old sort of old-fashioned naval sextants to kind of work out height and, and and basically just counting on their own two fingers, you know, what, what they're seeing. And they then phone back. And that goes to the sector stations as well as to the kind of group and to the um, uh, headquarters. And that information is all digested incredibly quickly, then fed back out to the collectively out to the, the, the fighter squadrons who are vectored, controlled, directed to the targets by ground controllers who have an operations room in which which the movement of these plots, which are being reported by both the Observer Corps and the radar, are being interpreted by plotters, people with sort of croupier sticks, which are moving moving these little raids on, on, a, on a little stick across a giant map. And, and so you're looking on a dais, looking down at this map below you, and on the far wall, you've got a, a kind of sort of a state of readiness chart of all the various squadrons which have different lights, so you can see which section of each squadron is airborne, when it's airborne, how close it is to target, little lights come up. And so at a glance, a ground controller can see exactly how the battle is playing out at any one moment and constantly adapt and then speak to his squadron commander up in the air who can then converse to the rest of his pilots. Okay, and, the, and, and so part what that of, means the point is, of the point of that yeah, is, is that 
instead of just having planes flying around in the sky looking for the enemy, right. they don't waste the resource. Uh, they don't have planes exactly. in the wrong place at the wrong time using up fuel. They just send them straight to the point of action. Yes, well, it's plus plus actually because it's 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 plus. You yes, you're not wasting fuel and you're taking straight to the action. But the second plus is you're then not on the ground when the enemy come over because you you know when to be airborne. And what that means is that the enemy can't bomb you while you're stationary on the ground and sitting ducks. And that's been traditionally how the Luftwaffe destroys an enemy air force because of course they can come over on mass at the point of concentration. So they can decide where they're going to attack with the number they're going to attack. And they can just go, I mean, so they can send, for example, 100 bombers over to one airfield if they so choose and obliterate that, that one airfield. Whereas the enemy has, you know, their opposition has absolutely no idea what number they're going to arrive or where they're going to arrive or what time they're going to arrive. So that makes defending yourself very, very difficult because, you, you know, as you say, you can only take off and fly around and hope to bump into some Luftwaffe. The problem is when you then come back down into land or... Or if you're just about to take off, you don't know what's kind of around the corner, and you and you get you get walloped. Well, that doesn't happen in in over in skies over England. So in in July 1940, what Downing is desperately keen to do is to avoid any action over the sea, because of course, if you're shot down over the sea, chances are that's you you've done for, because it absolutely does look like a proverbial river from 20,000 feet. But when you're bobbing around in a in your May West in the water, yeah. it looks like the Atlantic Ocean. And the chances of being found are quite small. So Okay, so that was an active decision to to not not have pilots coming down in the in, in the in the channel if possible. Yeah, so that's why he was only sending out kind of half a squadron or a flight or something at any one time and, and only with enormous reluctance and with huge amount of pressure. I mean his 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 view by July, while it's completely justifiable to go and protect the BEF as they're coming back from, from Dunkirk, it's a different kettle of fish flying over East, East, East Coast convoys and protecting them because the trouble is, is you get involved in a tussle and if you get shot down, that's you done. Whereas if you get shot down over Sussex and you manage to bail out, you can be flying again by 4.30 that afternoon. Yeah. Okay. Well... Perhaps rather than talk about, well, I haven't mentioned. I haven't mentioned Park or Lee Manor. Well, well, I thought we might just come on to the the, the tussle with them on the big wing a, a little bit later, if that would sure. be uh, okay. Yeah, um, but, because, but Dowding just to finish off yes, Dowding. I mean, but yeah. Dowding is is you know he should have been twice retired by my by May nineteen forty. He isn't because it's wartime. He's the guy who set it all up. He's the man in the chair at the time, and so he's his his retirement is postponed. But but you know he's he's not once this crisis has has passed. He was always going to be retired out of the service, you know. So, so everyone who gets very hot under the collar about him being kind of forced to sit out and to to resign, you know, step down in November 1940, is getting unnecessarily hot under the collar. Yeah, it wasn't done in a very nice way, though, was it? I mean, as in the usual cat-handed ministry method, they 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 sort of told him at the last moment, or they just gave him a call. I mean, it wasn't done with any kind of tact. No, that, that, that's certainly true. Um, but it was actually Lord Beaverbrook, who was by that stage uh, the um, Minister for Aircraft Reduction, who was the instigator of it. And, and Beaverbrook and Dowding got on incredibly well and um, right from the outset. So I, I think the kind of the lack of tact and all the rest of it has been possibly slightly overcooked. It but, was but a war. It was a war, you know. Well, I think the problem was who replaced him was the issue rather than the fact that he was... Yeah. Um, well, before we come on to the summary of the battle, just a quick word about the... Uh, well, we've got Goering and Kessel, Kesselring, his, um, his, the Luftwaffe chief, but also yes. we've got the Spitfire and the Hurricane. I think probably we should 
given the time, we should uh, talk about the Spitfire and the Hurricane and perhaps the German planes. Yeah, I mean, I can just mention Goering very briefly, yeah. if, you, if, if I may, which is is that, that although he was a fighter commander in the First World War, you know, he hasn't been to staff college. He's the world's first six-star general and only ever six-star general. And, you know, he's not really interested in high-level military command. He's a very canny and astute politician and, and businessman mm-hmm. and, um, and certainly a very astute art collector. But but he is completely ill-suited to being top of the... Um, top of the tree of the of the Luftwaffe. Kesselring is a completely different kettle of fish. He's pretty efficient. He's pretty competent. Um, he knows what he's about. The big problem with the Luftwaffe is their intelligence, which is absolutely woeful, um, and their aircraft production, which by 1940 is, uh, is you know, by summer of 1940, they start earlier, which is why they got more at the beginning of the war than, than everyone else apart from France. But by 1940, their monthly aircraft production is very, very low, and their intelligence is absolutely woeful, and that's because Goering runs the show a bit like Hitler does, uh, which is on a sort of divide and rule basis. So lots of parallel command structures. Mm. And people tell him what he wants to hear rather than what's the truth. So the intelligence briefing for before um, Adler and Griff, the uh, attack of the Eagles, the main Luftwaffe assault is is just a, is just absolutely woeful. In terms of aircraft, it's very interesting because, you know, if I had a pound for every time someone say, said, oh, of course, a hurricane shot down more enemy planes than the Spitfire in the Battle of Britain, I'd be quite a rich man. But the truth of the matter is, is, is that, the Hurricane was a was a stopgap. It was a it was a kind of right. We need a single um, single engine monoplane fighter of new generation, but we need it quick. And although the Spitfire is on the kind of you know is is being designed and all very funky and new and coming from Supermarine, who won the Schneider Trophy air races and all the rest of it, air sea races. There's a sort of massive level of urgency of getting this fighter plane in. And, and the point about the Hurricane is it's based on. Large parts of it are based on an earlier biplane in terms of its profile, its tail structure, its its um, fuselage. And of course, the beauty about that is you can use many of the same machine tools. And when you're creating a new aircraft, it's the machine tools which really take the time. You've mm. got to have the machine tools to make it. They've got to be made, which is complicated and expensive. Then you've got to have enough of them. And then you've got to train the workforce. And then you can start going into production. And that's yeah. sort of traditionally a, a, a kind of, you know, was it Winston, reason- Winston who said in the you know when you're getting you're ordering something new you get a tiny amount in the first year a, a certain amount in the second year a lot in the third and an absolute avalanche in the fourth year I mean it's same right. the Langster bomber wasn't it Yeah exactly well, that the advantage of the hurricane is is that many of the of the parts of it are already being produced so the difference is it's now got a closed cockpit it's it's monowing rather than biplane a large part of the hurricane is is based on a kind of you know if you look at the profile of a Nimrod or something like that or a Hawker Hart or something like that yeah you know they they look pretty darn similar. Is uh, it easier to fly than the Spitfire? No, it's not that. It's just that it's easier to make mm. and make quicker. So by 1940, there are more hurricanes than there are Spitfires because it's an easier thing to build. Now it's very robust in terms of it's got a wide undercarriage, which is good for kind of inexperienced pilots, sturdier on the ground. Um, it can take quite a lot of punishment um, because it's got quite thick wings. You can space out your machine guns so they're better spaced out um, or rather more concentrated, which means that your kind of arc, your cone of fire is more effective. Uh, but it, but its real problem is that it's just not quite fast enough and its rate of climb is really slow. Uh, and that's why during the Battle of Britain, it's then told to focus on the attacking German bombers who tend to operate at lower, lower heights rather than the fighters, which are harder to shoot down, which are at higher heights. The Spitfire is, is a completely brand new design, and it's very complex. 
to make um, and there's fewer of them, it's much quicker to climb. The problem is it doesn't have a supercharger on it in 1940, which means that as you turn on your back and dive, the uh, petrol is momentarily drained out of the out of the carburetor, and um, you get a flat spot. You, you get a flat spot, yeah. exactly that, which which affects its rate of dive. But it is, of course, incredibly manoeuvrable. It's an absolutely beautiful machine. Um, it's a very stable gun platform. It can dive quickly. It can you know it can climb quickly. All those sort of things. Um, it can operate at speeds you know heights in excess of twenty six thousand feet, which is what you want. And it can, and it's fast. You know, it can sort of fly at three hundred fifty miles an hour. So from that point of view, it's all very very good. There's absolutely no question in my mind that the um, the number one play fighter plane in 1940 is the Me 109E version, the Emil, um, which is a sort of apogee really of the of the 109, which is first flown, in, I think, first flown in 1934 or 35. But I mean, it's a good five years into its life cycle by the Battle of Britain, uh, and it has the fastest rate of climb, it has the fastest dive speed, and it packs a considerably larger punch than either the Spitfire and the Hurricane, both of which are equipped with eight Browning .303 machine guns, which are sort of effectively pea shooters, really, um, and only have 14.7 seconds worth of, of firing, whereas the Messerschmitt 109 has, uh, E has 55 seconds worth of machine gun um, firing uh, and also has um, as cannons. So you can, in theory, get your bead with, uh, with, your, with your machine guns uh, and with tracer um, in the machine guns, which is this sort of luminescence in, a bullet, in every sort of fourth or third bullet. So you can see it flying out. And, and then you only need one shot with a cannon and, and you know, a, a hurricane or a, or a Spitfire is, is, is a goner. The problem, you know, and those are the three things you need to be able to do in fighter aircraft. You know, the whole point about biplanes is about manoeuvrability. And that's the whole kind of pirouetting around the sky and all the rest of it and doing Immelmans and, you know, split S's and all these kind of maneuvers. Mm. But in 1940, what you really need to be able to do is climb fast, pack a massive punch when you get to the battle zone and then dive quickly. And if you can do all those three things, you, you don't really need all the kind of lardy dar acrobatics. Okay, well, now would be a good time to move on to the summary of the actual Battle of Britain. What, what were the size of the of the air fleets at the start? Yeah, so it's 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 really interesting. So, you know, on paper, um, the Luftwaffe have got about sort of two thousand eight hundred, but you never have that on any given day. So they've got about seven hundred and fifty or something single engine fighter planes. They've got around four hundred. Twin engine fighter planes, the Messerschmitt 110. They've got just under 400 Stukas and they've got around 1,200 bombers. But you're never going to have all that on one day. Whereas the RAF have got, they've got about 680 fighter planes, something like that, at, at the beginning of July, second week of July. They've probably got about 400 bombers. They've probably got another whole load of fighter, you know, aircraft within coastal command plus all the training command as well. So it's probably about 2,500 to 1,500. Okay. But that's not a three-to-one advantage. And, of course, but what everyone always counts is is the entire Luftwaffe that's ranged against Great Britain against fighter commands, and in a way that's a slightly misleading statistic. Okay. And and uh, also, for us, wasn't it more important to have pilots than planes? More about the shortage pilots. is in highly trained, trained pilots. Um, and, and, you know, Luftwaffe fighter pilots... Uh, British fight, RAF fighter pilots, they're both coming out of their operation training units. They're, they're reaching their squadrons of around the same amount of hours in a logbook, which is about 150 to 175, something like that. 
the big discrepancy as it comes on is is in the kind of operational training unit. So in a, in the RAF, you would do your initial training wing, then you do your sort of main training, then you get your wings, and then you'd be sent off to an operational training unit where you'd start to learn how to fly a Hurricane or a Spitfire or Blenheim or whatever Whitley or you know whatever it might be, or Wellington. And it's it's not it's not so much that they're under trained; they're they're perfectly well trained for the for the time in which they're they're operating. But it's just the panic about fighter uh, pilot numbers derives from the fact that by the end of August 1940, so Adler Tug, the launch of the, the Day of the Eagles, you know, the all-out Luftwaffe's attack begins on the 13th of, of August. And by the end of August, both Dowding and, and Air Vice Marshal Keith Park, who is the commander-in-chief of, of 11 Group, because fighter command is divided into different groups, and 11 Group covers London, most of London, and southeast england yeah and what they're worried about is that their pilot strength is in those in the in that in 11 group is down to about 75 percent but that doesn't mean nine because you would only ever have 12 aircraft airborne that actually means more like 17 or 18 because a british RAF fighter squadron would have pretty much double the number of pilots to keep 12 in the air at any one time so you might have kind of somewhere between 20 and 24 pilots for keeping 12 airborne at one point. Um, and this is so that they're not overflown. Yes. And what they assume is that a German system is exactly the same. So they've got a very, very clear intelligence on what German units there are and where they are. But they think a Staffel, which is a German squadron, is based on the same principle as an RAF squadron, i.e. with a huge amount of overlap in terms of personnel and, indeed, planes, okay. whereas it isn't. There's only 12. The establishment of a Staffel is 12, and very often they don't have 12. They only have nine, or they have five, or they have seven, or whatever. It's just whatever is available on that, that given day. So, so, so in other fact, okay. they're overestimating massively the strength of the, of the Luftwaffe compared to their own situation. Right. But they don't. But, but in a way, when you're on the defensive, overestimating the strength of your enemy isn't a bad thing. What is a bad thing is being on the attack and underestimating the strength of your enemy, which is exactly what the Germans did. A lot of the flap and worry at the end of August, beginning of September, is based on false premises of, of German strength. Okay, so in the Staffel, the German pilots, there's basically one pilot for one plane for the 12 or whatever it is. Yeah. Does that mean they're just not getting any rest? They're just constantly having to work? Exactly that. So they might be well, the best so you, pilot you ever. Might, yeah, exactly. So what, what tends to happen is there's 12, there's 12 pilots in a staffel, and there should be 12 planes, but there's never 12 planes that are available on any one given day because, you know, you're just about to take off and something develops, a, you know, mm. got a puncture or there's something not quite right with the carburetor or there's an oil leak or whatever. So suddenly you're down and then you get losses as well in combat and they're just not replaced because aircraft production in Germany is not as good as it should be. So you're then having to wait. So you have you might have sort of three days where instead of having 12, you've only got five. And you might have the next day, you might only have three available. And then suddenly it goes back up to eight. Hmm. But what tends to happen is the experienced pilots do most of the flying because they've got their own kite, you know, their own plane. And they're damned if they're going to let some greenhorn loose in their beloved Messerschmitt. So what tends to happen is the most absolute top, top, top number of sorties, individual operational flights that a RAF pilot would do is four in one day. And that's pretty much unheard of. No one would be expected to do more than two tops. And, and rarely 
more than one, to be honest. You know, one might be an air test, the other one might be a, might be a combat mission. Whereas by the beginning of September 1940, there's quite a lot of Germans who might be flying five or seven times in one day because there's not enough fighters to escort all the bombers. So they're having to double up. Good grief. Okay. So well, the, 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 and, and the reason why Dowding has built in this huge latitude into the British squadrons, the RAF squadrons, is because he feels very, very strongly that pilots shouldn't be overused because both mentally and physically, being a fighter pilot is incredibly draining. And it's important that they're fresh. And if they're fresh and fit and not having struggling, you know, emotionally and physically, they're going to be much more effective as fighter pilots. Of course, he's completely right. Yeah. But, but Germans don't think like that. So they have a completely different approach to it. They don't have, you know, so Dowding puts in 24 hours leave in every week and 48 hours in every three. And the moment someone looks like they're a bit exhausted, they get sort of sent off to become an instructor somewhere in Wales or something. Yeah. Whereas the Germans don't do that. They might let someone go off for a, for a couple of nights or a night just willy-nilly. But basically, you just keep flying. And there's also a completely different culture where, whereby the Luftwaffe pilot pilots, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to write reports, you go to a bar, you talk about tactics. You know, you're just there's no escape. Whereas the culture within fighter command is that at the end of the day, you, you're off duty and you don't talk shop at all. You, uh, you know, you go and sort of think about cricket or chasing girls or whatever it might be, or buying the next round. But you, 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 the whole idea is to decompress, to use modern parlance, whereas that just is not built into the Luftwaffe at all. OK, the actual battle, James, was in parts, wasn't it? It, it, it? You know, the the Luftwaffe went from one to another to another. Would you take us through those parts? Yeah, so so if you're if you're going to the original script of it starting on the 10th of July, it's the, it's the canal crank, you know, it's a, it's a war over the channel uh, to start off with. This is the Luftwaffe um, bombing, what, the Navy? Or? East Coast, yeah, East Coast convoys coming down through the channel. Uh, trying to lure fighter, trying to lure the RF. I mean, the Luftwaffe has absolutely no concept at all that the RF is divided into different commands. Um, so, so when we talk about them luring fighter command, that's that's a modern historian saying that rather than a contemporary German. They they have no understanding of, of fighter command and coastal command or bomber command. They just think they're formed in the same way that they are, which is into fleets, which are all uh, kind of different services, but they have elements of each within those those different fleets. And then there is a kind of sort of building up towards Adlertag, which is a softening up process of attacks on Portsmouth on the 12th of August, and particularly on the radar chains, uh, which is what the Germans call DT. And, and the radar chains, did they um, manage to actually knock out the radars or were they quite resilient? Yeah, they knock out, they knock out the one in Ventnor, but, but um, just for about 24 hours or 48 hours or something. But um, it's... The British have already thought of this, and so what they do is they put out false signals which suggest that it's still running, um, still working, even though it isn't. Uh, and that's to confuse the Germans to stop them bombing it again. Um, and it completely works. I mean, the, the, the Germans fall for a hook, line and sinker. And then it builds up to Adlertag itself, which is the 13th of August. Um, and then there's the initial phase, which is the attack on the first attack on, on the airfields, which is predominantly trying to destroy the RAF on the ground. Uh, and, of yeah. course, it can't do that because... We've got fighter air defence, so we're usually airborne when they come over. Not always, occasionally some come, you know, alone. You know, so for example, there was an attack on um, on Middle Wallop, which is actually um, in 10 Group, I think it is, which is just north of Salisbury. Yes. And that's literally a lone Junkers 88 bomber that comes over. It comes very low. It's 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 
very effective is hits a panger. Um, it's not anticipated. It's not picked up by radar. It destroys a number that, you know, makes a whole load of damage. But literally almost immediately, the Spitfires of 609 Squadron take off and shoot it down. Yeah. So therein lies the rub. You know, you can, you yeah. can get your bombs off, but very you're accurately. You're die in the process. But you're going to die in the process. It becomes a sort of kamikaze effort. Well, and also, Whereas I mean, if you, you come over en masse, you can anticipate it. You, and you can't really destroy the airfield. I mean, it's a grass airfield, isn't it? So Yeah, exactly. You know, 100 acres you know, of grass. It's very difficult. And of course, the RFI commanders anticipated this. And so, you know, they've got huge piles of scalpings and soil and bulldozers, you know, just at the edge of the field. So whenever there's a crater, you just fill it in again. Yeah, um, and it's um, you know get the get the roller over, and it's kind of you're, you're good to go. Um, and they've also got secondary um, control rooms as well. So your control rooms and sex stations tend to be like big and hill, for example. They're they're right on the airfield, but that gets hammered very quickly and, and really mashed. So they just move two miles down the road. It makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. As far as the Germans are concerned, they they've destroyed it. Um, so the first phase, it, I mean, this is in the German terminology. This is this is still the first phase. Um, from from Eagle Day 13th to the 24th of August. And 24th of August is is significant because this is overnight. This is when there's an accidental bombing of, of London. And it's also coincides with the day that the Stukas are withdrawn from the battle. Now, Luftwaffe put huge stall on dive bombing. And, th- and there's good reasons for this, because if you dive bomb, it means you can get to your target much more accurately, which means you then need less ordnance and less aircraft to do the damage that you're trying to do rather than from operating at kind of, you know, 18,000 feet or whatever. It's, it's, it's a combined arms bit of kit, really, is it? I mean, it's like having aerial artillery. Yeah, effectively. But but this is, but but the Germans get very kind of enamoured by dive bombing, the whole principle of dive bombing. And, and as I say, there, there are reasons for it because if you're dive bombing, you're getting much closer to your target, which means you can be more accurate, more accurate are the less ordnance you need. The problem with it is you have to control the airspace to do that because if you're low, once you release your bombs, you're then a sitting duck for any hurricane or spitfire that's waiting to pounce. And, of course, there are lots. So that's why you need complete control of the airspace um, to be able to effectively dive bomb. And if you don't have it, you're going to come a cropper, and that's exactly what happens to the Stukas. But unfortunately for the Luftwaffe, they put huge, great stall in dive bombing, and so their new medium bomber, the Junkers 88, that has to have, they, they announced to Junkers that that needs dive bombing capabilities. They're also trying to develop a, a heavy bomber called the Heinkel 177. They decide that needs dive bombing capabilities as well. And of course, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that a big, heavy four-engine bomber is just isn't going to work. Up. <laughs> no, but but they've already committed to this strategy. And by the time they realise over the, the end of the first phase of the Battle of Britain, the Adler Angriff, the Attack of the Eagles, as they call it, that the Stuka doesn't cut it if you don't have control of the airspace. It's kind of too late because that means they're now dependent on Heinkels, Heinkel 111s and Dornier 17s, which are frankly obsolescent by the standard of the day. Um, but that's all they've got left. What's, so, what's their bomb load? Those Well, those it's bombs. about a tonne, tonne and a half, you right. know, which is, okay. you think a Lancaster can take 10. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you're really talking about a completely different ball game. And... This is a problem with trying to destroy airfields. These bombers, these Dornier 17s, the Stukas aren't cutting it. They get pulled out of the battle on the 24th of August. Um, Heinkels and Dornier 17s don't have enough hitting power to kind of really destroy it. And so, you know, in the entire Battle of Britain, there's only one airfield that's knocked out for more than 48 hours, and that's Manston, the kind of tip of Kent. You know, out of 138 airfields, that's not really a very good ratio in favour of the Germans, to be honest. Yeah. So that's phase one. 
and then so they've well that's it's it's kind of phase three from the RF point of view, but it's phase one from the Luftwaffe point. Okay. When I regained consciousness, I was free of the machine and falling rapidly. I pulled the ripcord of my parachute and checked my descent with a jerk. Looking down, I saw that my left trouser leg was burnt off, that I was going to fall into the sea, and that the English coast was deplorably far away. About twenty feet above the water, I attempted to undo my parachute, failed, and flopped into the sea with it billowing around me. I was told later that the machine went into a spin at about 25,000 feet, and that at 10,000 feet I fell out unconscious. This may well have been so, for I discovered later a large cut on the top of my head, presumably collected while bumping around inside. The water was not unwarm, and I was pleasantly surprised to find that my life jacket kept me afloat. I looked at my watch. It was not there. Then for the first time I noticed how burnt my hands were, down to the wrist. The skin was dead white and hung in shreds. I felt faintly sick from the smell of burnt flesh. By closing one eye I could see my lips jutting out like motor tyres. The side of my parachute harness was cutting into me particularly painfully, so that I guess my right hip was burnt. I made a further attempt to undo the harness, but owing to the pain of my hands soon desisted. Instead I lay back and reviewed my position. I was a long way from land, my hands were burnt, and so, judging from the pain of the sun, was my face. It was unlikely that anyone on shore had seen me come down, and even more unlikely that a ship would come by. I could float for possibly four hours in my May West. I began to feel that I had perhaps been premature in considering myself lucky to have escaped from the machine. After about half an hour my teeth started chattering, and to quiet them I kept up a regular tuneless chant, varying it from time to time with calls for help. There can be few more futile pastimes than yelling for help alone in the North Sea with a solitary seagull for company, yet it gave me a certain melancholy satisfaction, for I had once written a story in which the hero, falling from a liner, had done just this. It was rejected. The water now seemed much colder, and I noticed with surprise that the sun had gone in, though my face was still burning. I looked down at my hands and, not seeing them, realised that I'd gone blind. So I was going to die. It came to me like that. I was going to die, and I was not afraid. The realisation came as a surprise. The manner of my approaching death appalled and horrified me, but the actual vision of death left me unafraid. I felt only a profound curiosity and a sense of satisfaction that within a few minutes or a few hours I was to learn the great answer. I decided that it should be a few minutes. I had no qualms about hastening my end, and reaching up, I managed to unscrew the valve of my May West. The air escaped in a rush and my head went under water. It is said by people who have all but died in the sea that drowning is a pleasant death. I did not find it so. I swallowed a large quantity of water before my head came up again, but derived little satisfaction from it. I tried again to find that I could not get my face under. I was so enmeshed in my parachute that I could not move. For the next ten minutes I tore my hands to ribbons on the spring-release catch. It was stuck fast. I lay back, exhausted, and then I started to laugh. By this time I was probably not entirely normal, and I doubt if my laughter was wholly sane, but there was something irresistibly comical in my grand gesture of suicide being so simply thwarted. Gotha once wrote that no one, unless he had led the full life and realised himself completely, had the right to take his own life. Providence seemed determined that I should not incur the great man's displeasure. It is often said that a dying man relives his whole life in one rapid kaleidoscope, I merely thought gloomily of the squadron returning, of my mother at home, and of the few people who had missed me. 
Outside my family, I could count them on the fingers of one hand. What did gratify me enormously was to find that I indulged in no frantic abasements or prayers to the Almighty. It's an old jibe of God-fearing people that the irreligious always change their tune when about to die. I was pleased to think that I was proving them wrong, because I seemed to be in for an indeterminate period of waiting. I began to feel a terrible loneliness and sought for some means to take my mind off my plight. I took it for granted that I must soon become delirious, and I attempted to hasten the process. I encouraged my mind to wander vaguely and aimlessly, with the result that I did experience a certain peace. But when I forced myself to think of something concrete, I found that I was still only too lucid. I went on shuttling between the two with varying success until I was picked up. I remember as in a dream hearing somebody shout. It seemed so far away and quite unconnected with me. Then willing arms were dragging me over the side, my parachute was taken off, and with such ease. A brandy flask was pushed into my swollen lips, and a voice said, OK, Joe, it's one of ours and still kicking. And I was safe. I was neither relieved nor angry. I was past caring. It was to the Margate lifeboat that I owed my rescue. Watchers on the coast had seen me come down, and for three hours they had been searching for me. Owing to wrong directions, they were just giving up and turning back for land when, ironically, one of them saw my parachute. They were then 15 miles east of Margate. While in the water I had been numb and had felt very little pain, now that I began to thaw out, the agony was such that I could have cried out. The good fellows made me as comfortable as possible, put up some sort of awning to keep the sun from my face, and phoned through for a doctor. It seemed to me to take an eternity to reach shore. I was put into an ambulance and driven rapidly to hospital. Through all this I was quite conscious, though unable to see. At the hospital they cut off my uniform, I gave the requisite information to a nurse about my next of kin and then, to my infinite relief, felt a hypodermic syringe pushed into my arm. That was Flight Lieutenant Richard Hillary, writing in 1941. His severe burn injuries were treated by the great pioneer of plastic surgery, Archibald McIndoo. Hillary became one of his most celebrated guinea pigs. Flight Lieutenant Hillary managed to persuade the authorities to allow him to return to active flying duty. He was killed on the 8th of January 1943. And then the second phase is the 24th of August to the 6th of September. Um, and this is the kind of where... They're still attacking airfields, but they're also attacking more docks and so on. But it's also when RAF Bomber Command starts bombing Berlin and hits Berlin four times by 4th of September. And Goering, and then, Goering this is uh, against Goering's promise to Hitler that uh, no bombs would fall on Berlin, something like that, was it? Yeah, yeah. And if, they, if you do that, you can call me Meyer. And, Meyer. Um, mm. and, and they do, which is just a sort of common German name, so I think called mm. Smith or something. And then, and then the next phase is, is from the 7th of September. And this is really the last phase, I suppose. So this is the third phase from the Luftwaffe and I suppose the fourth phase from the point of view of the, of, of the British. This is when Germany turns on London. And it coincides with... Uh, Saturday the 7th of, of September is a really significant day in the Battle of Britain because what happens is Dowding and Park are having this crisis about pilots. Uh, and it's his pilots that's the problem coming out of the OTUs. They've had to cut the OTUs so that some people have been sent to squadrons with only 10 or 15 hours on type, like a Spitfire or a Hurricane. And mm. that's not enough. But it's also it's not enough for the squadron leaders. They can't use them yeah. because if you put them in the air, they'll just get shot down because they just don't know enough. So it's not really helpful to cut the 
you know, you're not helping the situation no. with this 75% strength in fighter in, in 11 group yeah. by doing that. In actual fact, they're much, you know, fighter command is much more robust than both Park or, or Dowdy think it is. Mm. But Park at the same time comes up with a really good idea, which is squad, this squadron classification. So he says, look, I've got an idea. Why don't we classify squadrons A, B, and C? And an A squadron, A level squadron, is one that has 100% experienced pilots in it, veteran pilots. And they can be in 11 group down in the southeast where the bulk of the fighting is taking place. Then you've got B, a B squadron, which is a mixture of kind of half greenhorns and half experienced guys. And you might have that still quite close to the to the front, you know, to the front line, but but not as close. So maybe Exeter or somewhere like that, somewhere in the sort of southwest or somewhere like that, or mm. a bit further up in the Midlands. Yeah. And so they're not in the action quite so much, which will then give the veterans more of an opportunity to, to train up the greenhorns. And then you can have a category C, which will have mostly greenhorns, but maybe three or four veterans who really know what they're talking about. And we'll base them in Drem or, or Acklington in Northumberland or something like that, where once in a blue moon, a lone Junkers from Stavangar in Norway might fly over or something. But basically, you're not expecting to see a hill load of enemy activity. And in between time, the, the, the three or four experienced guys can really train up the greenhorns. And then at a certain point, when the greenhorns are no longer green, they could be posted down to an A, a category and relieve, squadron. A reliever squadron. So the whole squadron yes. would move with it? Or would it just well, be it, the individual? Well, it, it might be a combination. Yeah. It might be it might be a whole squadron, or it might just be individuals sent down. But the bottom line is, is you're then being able to reinforce. So, so you've got these squadrons all around the country, of basically seeing hardly any action at all. So, they're you know, say you've been in Acklington, you might be you might have kind of four hundred hours in your logbook, but you just haven't seen any action. So, you put those down to replenish the 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 beleaguered fighter squadrons in eleven group, at mm. Biggin Hill, or I don't know, whether at West Morling, or yeah. wherever it might, or Hawkinge, or wherever it might be. So suddenly they're back up to strength with experienced pilots who know what they're about. And you then rotate some of the most exhausted pilots up to kind of Drem or Actington, and they teach up the Greenhorns, and then you kind of constantly rotate it. And because the structure of a fighter squadron is based on, on the same principles wherever it might be, there's no – the only difference for the pilot – you know, say you're in Drem, you could be down in Hawkinge in an hour and a half – flying from a, with your new squadron, and it would all look incredibly familiar and same. You wouldn't need any kind of acclimatizer or anything. It's just crack on. Mm. And it's a genius, genius but He only and, came and up with that um, halfway through the battle, or they thought Yeah, that. so he comes up with that, that on the 7th of September. Right. For the 7th. So, yes, the, the battle hasn't been going quite five weeks. Um, so it's about, yes, yeah, about four weeks in. And it's a really, really good system. It's incredibly clever, and it works absolutely brilliant. It solves the manpower crisis just like that. But But... A lot, there's a lot of myth around this sort of idea, well, you know, they were going into battle with just 15 hours, you know, and they're logged. Well, that's just absolute balls. I mean, that, that is complete nonsense. Yeah. There is that, that a description in Geoffrey Wellham's book when he's up flying someone, he's got a greenhorn with him who, you know, doesn't survive his first encounter with the enemy. And, I'm, you know, I'm sure these things happened. Um, yeah. Well, obviously they did happen. And, and it's a really terrible thing to read you know because clearly the guy was terrified didn't really know how to fly his plane hardly and well yeah so he it's not that he wouldn't have had the right number of hours in his logbook it's that he would have been short of hours on the spitfire yeah that's the problem so he's still thinking about how to fly that and you really by the time you're going to combat you don't want to be thinking about how to fly you just want to be thinking about how to shoot down other planes and protect yourself 
And so, you know, it's a bit like driving a car. You know, when you first pass your driving test, you're still sort of thinking mirrors, you know, indicator, gear oh, which gear do I in, looking yeah. down your yeah. gear stick and all that kind of stuff. Whereas by the time, you know, by the time you've been driving a few weeks, you're kind of not even thinking That's about right. it. You yeah. just, you just, you want to go left. You yeah. just, you just Feeding do it. Feeding the baby, rolling a cigarette at the same time. No problem. All that kind of stuff. Exactly. So it's exactly the same with Spitfires and Hurricanes. Okay. So, um, so because we should probably keep pushing on because with time. Um, so the, the last phase is the Blitz phase. Is that it? Yeah. So, the, so that Saturday, 17th, 7th of September coincides with a change of tactics. And really, it's, a, it's an extraordinary thing. It's, it's in response to the fact that Berlin's been hit four times by this point. Um, but you would have thought a really heavy blast of London would would kind of be suffice to kind of maintain Nazi honour and the kind of sort of you hit me, so I'm going to hit you back kind of um, strategy. But really, if your stated aim is to clear the airways before a cross-channel invasion, attacking London really isn't going to do it. Mm. You know, you need to keep concentrating on the local airfields rather than scattering all over the place. You need to concentrate on all the airfields in southeast England, which they don't do that. You know, so their tactics are incredibly faulty. Um, and of course, instead of just attacking London maybe once or twice or something like that, it's the start of the Blitz, which goes on until the middle of May 1941. Um, and it doesn't really achieve an awful lot, to be perfectly honest. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a really, really dodgy strategy. And it's based entirely on, on the fact that both Luftwaffe, uh, both Goering and his senior commanders don't really know what to do. This is not going according to plan. This is all supposed to be over in four So days. they're just sort of lashing out. So they're lashing out. So, okay, well, the whole airfield thing didn't work. It hasn't worked like it did in kind of Belgium and Holland and France and Poland and Norway. You know, so what do we do now? Well, let's do this. And, and so Goering is constantly tinkering. He blames his, he says to his, okay, well, the problem is, is we're losing too many bombers. So the, the, the fighter planes now need to close escort the bombers, well, that means reducing your airspeed and weaving back and forth. It's the only way you can keep up with a bomber that's operating at kind of 160 miles an hour, 180 knots. Whereas your space, you're just absolutely itching to be unleashed at kind of 350, 360 miles an hour. So, A, by weaving, you're using up more fuel because you're having to travel further because you're weaving rather than going in a straight line. And secondly, you're not operating at your maximum. And, and the advantage that the, the fluffer has is that they've got the most superior fighter plane. But if you're not using it to its greatest advantage, then that superiority doesn't manifest itself. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens. And the bottom line is, is that that what happens in this, this different phase is that from Park's point of view, he's um, commander-in-chief of, um, of 11 Group, is that he, he it's much easier for him to anticipate what the Luftwaffe is trying to do when you get a huge, great mass formation building up over, you know, I don't know, Amiens or something. Or, or Santo Mare, and then heading across the channel, you can see exactly where it's going for. You know, it's, got, it's heading straight up the leg of Kent uh, and heading for London. So it's like, okay, well, that's quite easy to anticipate, which means you can then direct much more of your fighter squadrons into fighting it. So Keith Park, instead of, you know, when you've got sort of little plots of sort of 10 or 15 bombers coming over and their escorts coming over all over the place, you don't know where they're all going. It's not until they get really close to the airfield that you know that they're going, to, they're going in for an attack on... I don't know, Biggin Hill or, or, I don't know, North Weald or whatever it might be. But when you've got a mass formation of 300, you can see they're going for one target and more often than not, that's going to be Southampton or London or whatever it might be. And so you can start to scramble more. And, and what's really interesting is that on the 15th of, of September, there's this, these two huge raids. We now commemorate that day as Battle of Britain Day. And the second raid is a, peaks around three o'clock in the afternoon. 
And there's around 300 enemy aircraft, of which 100 are bombers and 200 are fighter escorts. But reigned against them are 335 Spitfires and Hurricanes. And this is the day that, that Churchill visits Keith Park and the bunker at Uxbridge, the headquarters of 11 Group, and says, where are all the reserves? And Park says, there are none. And what he means is, I have none. But there's another, you know, 400 aircraft around the country. So, so it's, it's, it's been completely taken out of context. Yeah. And the bottom line is, of course, is if you're Jeff Wellham in 92 Squadron, you're one of 12 against 300. You look, it looks like the odds are absolutely enormous. But, of course, you're not one of 12. You're one of 335. But as a 19-year-old, you don't know that. Yes. Because it's not your job to see the bigger picture. But, but it is the job of a historian to see that bigger picture. And the fact of the matter is, is the Germans just don't have enough to do what they're trying to do. They don't have a big enough force. They've underestimated the strength of the RAF. They don't understand the air defence system. They don't appreciate how radar works. They don't understand anything about the Observer Corps. They don't understand that the RAF is in different commands. Um, they don't understand that the RAF is producing between double and three times the number of aircraft that they are every month. And they just don't have enough to do what they need to do, which is secure air superiority over the invasion front and beyond. Fantastic. Okay, well, the next sort of section is on key moments and hot points in the battle. Sorry, well, I, th- I think some of the some of the, op- the hot points come immediately after after Eagle Day. So okay, the fifteenth of, of of August, you know, two days after Eagle Day. So there was not much going on on the fourteenth. The sort of D- Eagle Day plus one. Fifteenth is a very um, very big day of, of aerial fighting. You know, which fighter command loses thirty five and the Luftwaffe loses seventy six, and then. 18th of August, the Sunday, is known as the hardest day. And on that day, Fighter Command loses 35 and the Luftwaffe loses 67. So the 15th of August is actually the day in which the Luftwaffe loses the most aircraft in a single day. And so very quickly on, these are really big moments because the Luftwaffe are suddenly going, oh, um, you know, this isn't the kind of walkover we were expecting. And they've never really been tested before this moment in no. this way. No, anyway. exactly. And then you have the kind of withdrawal. Then you have the accidental bombing of London on the on the night of the 23rd, 24th of August. Then you have the withdrawal of the Stukas the following day. So that's a big moment. Then your other big moment is without question of doubt, Saturday, the 7th of September. You know, that's when Park comes up with his squadron classification. That's when the blitz starts, uh, the, the change of tactics, which are no more suited to destroying the RAF. Um, than the attacks on the airfields. In fact, they're even less suited to doing that. You know, how can you destroy the RAF? You know, if you're trying to destroy the RAF airfields, how are you going to be doing that by bombing London? You just can't. You can't do everything. And that's that's just symptomatic of, of a strategy and tactics that have just gone completely befuddled by the fact that the RAF is not playing ball in the way that the Polish Air Force or the Belgian, Dutch, French, uh, and indeed RAF in France, air forces have done earlier on in the war. And then the next phase is really kind of... What, sorry, what, what led the Germans to think that the RAF would? So what did the Belgians and the... What did they well, they do? don't they have an just, air defence defen- defen- system. So, so they just so, were a big muddle and they just... Yeah, they're just in. taking off, hoping to bump into the Luftwaffe. And right. They'll get destroyed. They mostly get destroyed on the ground. Uh, and the, the whole German way of war is to have a... is what's called a Schwerpunkt, leader, a concentration of force at the main point of attack. Um, and... They can do that when they hold all the aces, when they're bossing the show. But the point is, when you've got when you're coming up against an air defence system where your enemy can anticipate when you're arriving, that that Schwerpunkt just doesn't work because the enemy can provide a Schwerpunkt in riposte. 
And so the whole principle of the Shrepon, which is you hit your enemy with great surprise, incredibly hardly with a massive concentration force, is just completely knocked on its head. And that's what happens in the Battle of Britain. And then the final phase is really kind of sort of on the 17th of September, um, Hitler sort of stands down, puts on hold Operation Sea Lion, which is a planned invasion, and then completely stands it down in, um, in the first week of October. And then the whole thing just sort of peters out, basically. And he's, ter- he's thinking, I'm going east. He's, he's yeah, he's already been thinking that since July, to be perfectly honest. And it becomes increasing. You know, he, he's always reluctant to launch Operation Sea Lion because even Hitler realises the huge risks involved. I mean, if you think about the jeopardy there is for D-Day, you know, four years later, when we've got, you know, the Allies have got 7,000 vessels, 3,500 aircraft, complete mastery of the skies, complete mastery of intelligence, and the most sophisticated yeah. supply systems in the world. Yeah, the um, and they're still worried have, about it. They, they didn't don't have say 5%, any of that. 5%, did they? Of, no, of no, that. no. And I mean, there is there is not a the remotest chance that Operation Z-Line would have worked. You know, even if they'd, they'd beaten the RAF, it couldn't have worked. Because, you know, the Navy is the largest in the world, the RAF, the Royal Navy at that time. And they'd been absolutely slaughtered. Great. Okay. So those are the key points. Now, a little bit on, well, troops, tactics and technology. Well, again, we've talked about some of the the things. You mentioned about cannon versus 303 earlier on, which was a good point uh, uh, about that. One of the things that's being contested backwards and forwards is this idea of the big wing yes whether or not that was a good idea whether it was just park versus lee mallory coming up against each other what well the variance of it so the idea of big wings is you have multiple squadrons all all coming into attack at once but the thing is the bigger the bigger the bigger the target generally speaking the kind of the easier the more that are going to get shot down as a proportion because you know you you then become a bigger target because there's more of you the big problem with the big wing in in September 1940 is the time it takes to form it up because you've got to take off, then you've got to circle around the airfield, using up precious fuel, then you've got to wait for everyone else to, and then you've got to form yourself up into formation. So that takes 15 to 20 minutes, by which time Luftwaffe have already reached the outskirts of London. So you can't, the whole point is, <laughs> the way Park's tactics is, is to try and henpeck, hammer away, peck, 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 at the, at the German formation before it reaches its targets of the London docks and the East End. And, and, and hasn't you can't he, do that with a big one. Hasn't he effectively got that? You said on that, uh, you know, that he had all his planes in the air on that yeah, absolutely. day in September and therefore effectively has a big wing, sort of, doesn't he? Well, this is exactly his point, that you don't need big wing. What you need to do is marshal your, constantly adjust and hone your tactics so that you're using your squadrons in a very effective way. So what he was doing is sending up squadrons in pairs, you know, so you'd have a, 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 a Spitfire squadron doing high cover and a Hurricane doing low cover and the, the spitfires are there to kind of see off the fighters and the uh, hurricanes at a lower level are there to to shoot down the bombers and that's because hurricanes can't climb as fast so and bombers operate at lower altitudes than, than fighters so his point is there's just no point in doing a big wing because it just takes that waste time and doesn't achieve anything the flip side of that is that as the as the luftwaffe are returning home seeing kind of 50 hurricanes and spitfires homing into view and sweeping down on you obviously does have an effect um and, and not a very positive one from the luftwaffe's point of view so it's not that it's without merit it's just it's not as effective as barda who is merely a kind of you know a wing commander is claiming and it, it, again, it just gets blown completely out of proportion. I mean, what's really interesting is when Park takes over as Air Officer Commanding Malta in July 1942, 
um, almost immediately he instigates bigwings to inter intercept the Luftwaffe and, and Axis air forces before they reach Malta. And so he's trying to do the same principle as he is of trying to intercept the bombers before they reach London mm. in 1940. But he's doing it with multiple Spitfire squadrons because by that time he's just got Spitfires. He hasn't got Hurricanes. So they can, op they can climb much quicker, which means that they can reach, they can attack en masse from a, a great height before the enemy reached Malta itself. So his point, as always, was it's not that the big week doesn't have merit. It's just how you use it and when you use it. Yeah. Uh, and he didn't think that in September 1940 it was a particularly good use of, of resources. And I think he was probably right. And a final point on this, uh, on the sort of tactics, was is it true to say that the, the Luftwaffe, compared to the RAF, had inflexible tactics? Or was it just... The wrong tactics. No, it's not that they're inflexible tactics because they are constantly changing their tactics. It's just the wrong tactics. And the reason they're the wrong tactics is because they they don't have enough of what they need to do what they want to do. So you have your strategy, which is to destroy the RAF, and then you can only do what you can do with the equipment you've got. And so instead of accepting very quickly that they haven't got enough to do what they're intending to do, they then start twiddling, micromanaging with minor details, which actually makes the situation worse for them than better. That's the problem. It's not that they're inflexible. It's just that they, they can't, can't find do the what answer. they need to, They can't find the answer, exactly. Yeah. Exactly that. Interesting. Well, before we come on to the sort of end, uh, the uh, conclusion aftermath, it'd be nice to hear if you wanted to talk about any of the individuals. I've read recently Jeffrey Wellham's fantastic book, which I know you you found you found him. It's the most lovely story. My mother has actually gone absolutely mad for it and is sending it to all her friends, and that is a great example, I thought anyway, of of um, what it was like to be a young man to learn to fly and and um, so un wonderfully understated. Uh, but obviously there were others, there were Barda, there was Eric Nicholson, um, Sailor Mallon. And... Well, there's all the, yeah, there's all the great fighter commanders and stuff. I mean, so many characters are, are, are on both sides, to be perfectly honest. I was very lucky that I sort of got to read um, the diaries of a guy called Siegfried Betka, who was in JG2, Gishwada 2, it's a fighter group. And his diaries are just absolutely fascinating because, of course, they're written on the day. You know, there's no retrospective. There's no kind of sort of... Did he uh, survive? Yeah, he did. He did, actually. Um, and it's very honest. And his his fears and his worries and his anxieties all ring incredibly true. And it makes it makes the Germans seem a lot less automaton and a lot more human and a lot more like the British fighter pilots in many ways. Um, so that was fascinating. I mean, I've been very lucky to meet a number of Battle Britain fighter pilots um, before they passed away. Um, and when they were still had quite a lot of life left to live. Uh, and they're all, you know, they're fascinating people. I mean, I think, you know, the point about Jeff's book is, is that you know, he was just so young at the time. I mean, you knew absolutely nothing of what was going on in a wider battle. It's very honest, you know, it was written in the 1970s, you know, not so long after the battle. Um, but long enough for him to... Have digested know. his experiences yeah. a bit. And, you know, he was a naturally gifted writer, so it was a very powerful piece. But yeah, you know, to be young, you know, be 19, 20, 18, you know, in 1914, be flying to save Britain um, is, is an extraordinary thing. Really. Give us one book uh, written by a fighter pilot or of a fighter pilot that you would recommend. Well, obviously that one's very, very good. Um, yeah. I always rather like Perfect. Smoke Trails in the Sky by Tony Bartley. That's a rather good one. Um, and Tom Neal is, is, was just such a lovely fellow and 
Um, his, he's written a series of books on, on the Battle of Britain and his fighter experience, and they're just, all Tom's books are fantastic. There was a sort of a, 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 a combined one called Scramble, Exploration Rock, um, which was fantastic. Right, check it out. Great. Okay, so in conclusion and the aftermath, um, the final tally, the sort of losses, dead and wounded, loss of aircraft. Yep. Sorry to put you on the spot. Yeah, the final tally, I don't have the precise figures no, on, but, on me, I'm afraid. But no. but but you know, the bottom line, in a way, it's sort of irrelevant, you know, who shoots down what on what day. Mm. The bottom line is, is the Luftwaffe failed absolutely terribly. Um, it, was a, it was their first defeat, the Luftwaffe very much the kind of the stars of the show of the spearhead, the most shiny part of the of the Nazi armed forces. They got absolutely stopped in their tracks. I mean, you know, I remember talking to Hans Eckhardt, Bob, who was a Luftwaffe fighter pilot, and he kept trying to maintain that it was a, a, a draw, but it wasn't. You know, the Luftwaffe was defeated, and and it prompted Germany to go into the Soviet Union much earlier than they were ready. Um, with and it was a catastrophe for them, and and, and Goering's you know, reputation. Yeah, of course, never. that took a massive hit. So I think, really, you know, when you look at it, it's it's it's, you know, Churchill in the summer of 1940 said um, Hitler knows he must defeat Britain or lose the war, and you know that's to a certain extent sort of hyperbole at the time, but actually it was spot on. And you know, I think although the numbers of people involved is comparatively small, certainly compared to kind of what was to come. Strategic importance doesn't equate to losses or numbers of boots on the ground or even in the air. It's it's what is strategically important at that particular moment in time. And the Battle of Britain is one of the great turning points of the war. And, you know, after the stunning successes of the first half of 1940 and the latter end of 1939, this is what consigns Germany to a long attritional war that it can't afford and never has any chance of winning. So it's the turning point. It's the first great turning point. Yes. and In the defeat of Nazi Germany, the Axis powers. Yeah, any further things to talk about in terms of the way that air power was viewed by the Allies versus the Germans? Well, just just only in so much that it's a completely different structure that we have. You know, we're, we're at this point we're still involved in commands, whereas they're well, fleets. So their fleets have bombers and dive bombers and reconnaissance planes and fighter planes and heavy fighter planes, whereas we have fighter command, coastal command, training command, bomber command, and, and organise it in a completely different structure. Uh, and that's much better from which to kind of protract your war from Britain. But obviously, as the war progresses, you need to develop close air support and different commands overseas and all the rest of it. So it, it, it's, it's constantly evolving. Um, certainly, you know, in terms of aircraft production, in terms of intelligence, in terms of um, tactics, operational level, strategic level, the RAF just absolutely whipped the lift off in the summer of 1940. And, and do you think that's a moment when the RAF really nailed itself as a separate organisation from the Army and the Navy? Because, the, yes. the, yeah, that was the moment where it, it sealed the deal. It's obviously been around since April 1918, mm. but, but at that, yes, that's the point where it seals the deal. Because it's not very effective in France. Um, it is over Dunkirk. I think it's very effective, and that's largely down to fighting fire. But, but, but the bombers obviously are all over the place. They don't have ground controllers. You know, it's, 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 they're, they're operating on the French system, which is hopeless and you know, it just doesn't work at all so you know the RF all at sea but slowly and surely over the summer of 1940 it absolutely cements its the absolute rightness of putting air power burgeoning air power at the kind of forefront of of, of defense James I think we can end it there Brilliant. all right thanks Tom bye. thanks James bye bye
There we have it, a great air battle which left Britain undefeated, Goering humiliated and led Hitler to make his great mistake, turning his eyes to conquest in the East whilst leaving an untamed foe at his back. The first of many terrible decisions he would make in the next five years. Churchill said in 1940, if Hitler fails to invade or destroy Britain, he has lost the war. The Battle of Britain, one of our nation's most significant victories, it didn't end the war, but it did create the critical shift in direction of the conflict that ultimately led to the defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945. So it goes. You've been listening to our mini-series on important battles. The details of James Holland's book, The Battle of Britain, are given in the show notes. And his latest book is Brothers in Arms, the incredible account of one tank regiment, the Sherwood Rangers, from D-Day to V-Day. Please pass this podcast on to a friend to help spread the word. You can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.